Our scripture for today comes from the book of Malachi, chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. Let us hear God's word to us. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is right, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord. So this morning, we're going to talk about money. That's right, I said it, money. Cash, the green machine, cheddar, greenbacks, bones, bills, moolah, money, whatever you want to call it. Let's talk about it. I know, money can be a tough topic. Money is something we like to keep hush, hush sermons on money, preachers asking for money, programs in a church needing money. They can all be a little dicey. In fact, there are horrible examples out there of preachers asking for money. Have you ever seen a televangelist at work? They'll be running one of their donation drives and saying something like, God is telling me there's someone who has a limp, and God is telling me that if you give now, healing is coming. Or God is telling me there is someone with credit card debt, but if you give now to God's kingdom, then that credit card debt will go away. These sorts of examples have given the church a really bad reputation with money, mostly because these people don't necessarily end up healed, and those pastors always seem to have really nice jets and luxury vehicles, which is embarrassing and not what we're doing. Other churches pick up on money roughly once a year as some sort of desperate plea to secure funding for the upcoming fiscal year. Also not what we're doing this morning. Lots of churches respond to this money issue by not talking about it at all. But the issue with that is money is a big deal. We can hardly go a day without spending money. Food, gas, football games, paying to keep the lights on, the air conditioning. Then you have financial planning, financial planning for kids, thinking about kids that will eventually, hopefully, go to college. Thinking about the fact that college tuition rates have been increased 1,120% in 30 years. No wonder money is such an important topic. We can't go a day without money being a part of our lives. 
No, long, no wonder money is also a leading cause for marital disputes in this country, because it seems like everywhere you turn, there's a cost of admission. Everywhere except the church, which is part of why many churches avoid talking about it. They want it to be a money-free zone, a place you can come and not think about money. But the issue with that is that money, money can enslave you. I have a pastor friend who works at a large Presbyterian church in California. This man has been pastoring this church for quite some time, and he tells a story of a prominent member of the church who faithfully tithed, faithfully. Every week he tithes and he put it into the plate. If he went out of town, he would make sure to double up the next week. He never missed it. This guy was your tithing all-star. Then he got a raise at his job, a substantial raise. The man began making double what he was making before. Now, the pastor wasn't greedy, but he was certainly curious about what would happen to this guy's giving. So he probably, in some really bad ethical ways, watched the checks and was shocked. Not only did the man not continue to tithe or give 10%, he didn't even give the same amount as before. He began giving less, making double but giving less. Pastor asked him about it. And the man looked at him and said, Pastor, I just can't afford to give that much anymore. See, his lifestyle had accelerated and outpaced his own income. He couldn't afford to tithe anymore. He couldn't even afford as much as he used to. Somehow this hole had emerged within him and he was trying to fill it with money. Let me say that money can be a big blessing. Money in our society is a necessity. Money is not an evil thing. Spending money is not a bad thing either. But money has this power, this power to make us stressed beyond reason about not having enough of it. Money has this power to cause disputes within relationships or the power to stop us or keep us from doing something. Money in some ways has climbed up the ladder and has situated itself right next to God. And the problem is that money can control our lives in ways that only God should which is why the Bible spends a lot of time talking about it. Actually, the Bible spends a ton of time talking about it. God seems to deeply care about money. So, let's look at why. If we head back to our passage today, we see this passage starts off with God accusing Israel of leaving him. When they ask how, he says they've been robbing him when they ask how, he says, in tithes and offerings. God just dropped a bomb here. God brought up money. But here's what's weird. God doesn't need our money. This is a simple fact. When the devil tempts Jesus in the desert, the devil says, why don't you turn all those rocks into bread? And Jesus refuses but admits that he could. When someone asks Jesus about taxes, he sends them to catch a fish. And in the fish's mouth, there's a gold coin. 
when he sees Peter and some disciples fishing and catching nothing, he has them throw the net to the other side, and it's filled to overflowing. God doesn't need anything from us to make money. God can literally make anything out of nothing. And his sources of income are not an issue. Which is why this sermon is not a stewardship sermon. This is not about the church's budget. This is not me asking for money for a particular cause or situation. It's simply about why God commands us to give back to him. God doesn't need our money Why does God care at all that Israel tithes? To get to the heart of that, let's go back to where tithing began. Tithing originated with Jacob's promise to God in Genesis chapter 28. Jacob promises to give God one-tenth of everything he has and give it back to God if God will keep him safe, fed, and protected. It was how Jacob pledged his trust and allegiance to God. So when God established a covenant with Israel, a tithe became a part of the law that governed the Israelites. They were to trust God to provide for them. So even as they lived in scarcity in the desert, they were commanded to tithe, and God provided for them. Tithing was never supposed to be a burden to God's people. It was a pledge to trust God, even with all the things we need to survive. The Israelites gave of their food, their cattle, their crops. Jacob did too. It was a way of posturing themselves at Jesus' feet. It was God who had given them their homes, their crops, their flocks, and their herds. So even in their need, they gave back to God. Because more than they needed the food, more than they needed the cattle, they needed God. Giving 10% was simply a way to remember that. But the tithe didn't just vanish. The money didn't just go to God and then go nowhere. Israel was to give 10% so that God could make sure to take care of the rest of the community, the strangers, the poor, the outsiders. Tithing from its beginning was about upholding a community so that a community together could thrive. It's about allowing God's blessings that are flowing down upon us to bless those around us. It was built in to their own community that they were to share their blessings, their inheritance, their wealth with others. They would invite family and friends and the poor and the stranger and everyone would come together when the offerings were brought to God. And they would sit together and they would feast. Maybe there's something to the number of times we gather together to eat food. Presbyterians got the potluck from somewhere. So in Malachi 3, tithing is about coming back to God, remembering this covenant community. It's about not forgetting God anymore, but trusting God with everything. Tithing is not about giving God some money because God overextended himself with some investment. Tithing, offering, it's about us. 
It's about us blessing others because we have been blessed by God. Offering to God our money is not supposed to be a burden. It's supposed to be a blessing to us, to our community. It's even supposed to lead us to gathering together and feasting. So, if that's where tithing comes from, then why in Malachi 3 do the Israelites stop? Why did they start robbing God of what was his? I think it's simple. It's simply because the Israelites forgot they needed God more than their crops and livestock. They thought they could control their lives better than God could. Like the man I mentioned earlier, money took God's place as what would protect them. Money became what would give them happiness and security and comfort and joy. I didn't give you the full story of this man in California earlier, but I'll bet you can fill it in. Do you think the man was happier after his raise? He admitted to his pastor that he wasn't. He admitted that he had thought that this raise would reduce his stress, that it would make things simpler, but somehow the opposite had happened. Somehow it wasn't better. It's easy to look toward money to provide for us. That's why it's so hard to give it back to God. It's hard to offer God our hard-earned money. And not even just money. It's hard to trust God with our time, with our energy, with our kids, with our spouses. What do we do? Just hand them over to God? What if he wastes it? What if we're left hanging? What if we aren't left happy or provided for? This is exactly why God talks about it so much in the Bible. Money is often competing with God for the privilege of providing for us. Money is often competing with God for what directs our lives. But there's a very important difference. Money doesn't care about you. Money doesn't care about anything. God says to the Israelites, you have been robbing me with tithes and offerings. They robbed God of money, and they also robbed God of the right to provide for them. They've given that right to the own possessions that they had. Which is why what God is really saying to the Israelites is not, you have robbed me, but you have robbed yourself. Because money can't provide for us like God can. Test me, says the Lord Almighty. Bring to me all your tithes and offerings and see that I won't open the floodgates of heaven so that you have so many blessings you can't even count them. This man from California that I mentioned, he drew his trust in God away. And he placed it in his increased paycheck. That money didn't shower him with blessings. It showered him with stress. It showered him with insecurity. It nagged at him for all of the things that he couldn't afford still. Money is supposed to be a gift. A gift from God. But 
when we turn that money into our God, when we look to money to be our Savior, it becomes a curse. Offering is not for God. It's for you. God says, test me and see if I won't bless you. There's a professor at Princeton that Brian and I had the privilege of getting to know. Her name is Kenda Dean. She tells this story about her son, Brendan, and Brendan becoming a teenager. As she processes this change in her son's life of him becoming a teenager, she uses a rather weird story. She uses the story of Abraham being called to sacrifice Isaac. Kinda's struggle is the same as the man I mentioned earlier. It's the same we all go through. Her struggle is deciding whether she will trust God with the things that matter to her the most. Her son, for example. One option she has is to let her son Brendan grow up alone. I say alone because there's only so much a parent can do, only so much that a parent can protect their kids from. Eventually, her son will have to handle situations himself. The world isn't so friendly to teenagers. Teenagers have to make decisions that will affect them for the rest of their lives. They're the primary target for advertisements from the time they're age 10, subject to peer pressure and consumer culture, to impossible expectations with grades and appearance and athletic ability. She can't protect him from all that. Her other option is to accept God's invitation. This is where she uses the story of Abraham and Isaac. She believes, take your son whom you love and offer him as a burnt offering in one of the mountains that I will show you. In regards to her own son and this text, Kenda states this. I can climb this coming-of-age mountain with Brendan just so far, knowing that very soon I will run out of ways to protect him. I might respond like Abraham and say something wise and faithful like, God will handle it. Then again, I might not. I might build an altar and then at the last minute start shrieking, No, run, go back. God's going to get you. This can be our response to God's call to offer something to him. Whether it's money or time, our job, our marriage, our health, our children, it is nerve-wracking to hand it over to God. It means it's out of our hands and it's in God's hands. I'm afraid we're not always so sure we want to trust God with everything. But what's our other option. Kinda could trust Brendan to his friends, but they're going through the same thing he is. She could keep him as a child forever, but even Peter Pan eventually has to grow up. She can trust Brendan to herself, protecting him through the media storm, the social pressures, the mistakes, and the pitfalls that he will eventually run into. Who can she trust her son to? Her conclusion is concise. Kenda says, given the options, I'm banking on God. The reason God tells Israel to tithe is not because God needs our money. It's not. 
It's because God knows that we will be tempted to entrust ourselves to our money, to look to our money, to take care of us, to protect us, to give us what we need. But money doesn't care about us. Money doesn't care if what you buy leaves you happy or sad or depressed or dead. We care about money. That's why it's so nerve-wracking to hand it over to God. If we give it to God, we won't have enough. We won't be secure. We won't be protected. We're not sure we want God to have it. Test me says the Lord. Bring the whole tithe into my storehouse, because by trusting God with everything, with our families and with our money, we allow God to be God, the one we place our trust in. And when our trust is in God, we can see that offering is not for God, it's for us. If you don't believe me, then test God yourself. Offer him one hour a week and see if peace doesn't start taking over. Offer him a skill you have and put it to work in his kingdom and see if you aren't blessed ten times more. Offer him your children and see if God won't raise them up to people you are proud of. Offer him your spouse and see if God won't love them better than you can. Offer him your tithes and your offerings and see that the floodgates of heaven won't open. Offering isn't for God. It's for you. And frankly, given all the options, well, I'm banking on God. Let us pray. God, we know that you have given us so many gifts, and we know it is nerve-wracking to hand them over to you. The things we love the most, the things that we think we need to get by, how easily they become the things that are over us. Lord, might we again remember to surrender everything to you, realizing that in offering ourselves all the gifts that we have, that you will bless us richly, that we will be the ones that reap the blessings from our God. Continue to protect us and continue to work in our hearts that we might give fully to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.